Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16, Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is given by God and it is profitable. It is the breath of God. And so we, as we read Scripture, we're actually experiencing the very breath, therefore the life of God. Jesus is the living Word. And so we are actually walking in Christ as we hear His Word and obey it. And so as a church, we believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, meaning that every word was intentional as given by the Holy Spirit to those who authored it. Yes, God used different men with different personalities to capture the emotion that the Spirit would give to them, but every word is not the word of man. It is the exact word of God. God chose the Greek language because it is so detailed. He chose the Hebrew language because it is so rich. And so we don't have other languages like these two languages that speak with such vivid clarity and depth as these two languages. So I say all of that to say this. As a church, we preach Scripture, not creeds. Although we may be a creedal people, our beliefs do not come from creeds. Creeds encapsulate what we do believe. And so we're working through the Apostles' Creed right now, for those of you who may not have been here the last couple of weeks. But creeds have no power beyond Scripture. But the Apostles' Creed has been used in some form since the very beginning of the church. In fact, the creed that we are encapsulating our beliefs as a church from is found as early as in the 400s. That's a long time ago. But there are some remnants of some passages that date all the way back to the 100s where the 400s are quoting some passages that we had before that. So how long these actually exist, we do not know, but we know that in its purest form, creeds like this existed in the 400s. Christians for centuries have stood to recite it in harmony and unity For a thousand years, regardless of denomination. It brings unity. It brings solidarity. It brings remembrance. It brings strengths. It serves to give us direction. It serves to give us purpose. It preserves our doctrine in a capsule and forms us completed in Christ. And whenever the people of God have stood to honor the beliefs And the doctrines of the church throughout Christian history, they've done two things simultaneously. The first thing that they have done is they have rejected the popular narratives of the day. What we're saying is, I reject materialism. I reject that more stuff is going to make me happy. When Christians recite the Apostles' Creed, they reject progressivism. The idea that mankind is always getting better. We reject that while simultaneously... Rejecting that, we are also pledging allegiance to the Trinity, the triune God of the Bible. Pledging allegiance to His three-in-one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Three distinct persons, yet one in the Godhead. That's what Christians have been doing from the very beginning. Different ways in the Old Testament, they would stand and they would quote Scripture. We've rebelled against popular narratives. We've embraced the true narrative found in the Word of God, and so... With that, I'm going to ask us, if you would, if you can, to stand. We're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. If you're not a Christian here this morning and this makes you feel uncomfortable, you can feel free to stay seated, or you can stand with us and stand among us, but we're going to read this together. If we already covered, we know that the Creed begins with, I believe, not I know. There's two ways to know things. You can know things in your mind, and that's understanding. You can know things in your heart, and that's called belief. And the Bible calls us to do both of those things. And so we have to allow these things to move from our heads down into our hearts so that they can change our lives and transform us to be more like Jesus Christ. So again, just repeat with me. Make sure you're keeping in with those that are standing around you. If if you get ahead or they get ahead, just kind of nudge them a little bit and talk a little louder. All right? Maybe they can't hear you. 
Ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there's a difference between knowing things in your head and knowing things in your heart. You can know things in your head and not obey them, not act upon them. But if you believe, then you act upon them. So today we're going to consider the triune nature of God again, and it leads us to the second person of the Trinity. Last week we looked at God the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and today to Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verse well, start, start in verse 13. In the creed, we find three titles to Jesus Christ. Today in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see two of them in one passage of Scripture. Let's look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, that quiet, reserved, self-controlled disciple said, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. <laughs> who knew him best had the best confession of who he was. Now verse 16 is where we're going to camp out, but we go back up to verse 13 and I want to just show you a couple of, of things. In verse 16, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. And by the way, this is very important. You want to write this out in the margins or you want to put it, you know, circle something here. You can circle that. You are the Christ because articles matter. All right? Now, for those of you who may not be Greek scholars, you may not understand what, I talk, what I'm talking about here, but articles matter in Greek language. And it is included here. So you can circle, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. It's very important. So in, let me explain to you a little bit about your English Bibles. A lot of times in translations, you will find words in italics that you don't know why they're in italics. So let me explain to you why they're in italics. Okay, They're in italics because they're not in the original language. They are added because it makes it more readable for the reader. So oftentimes you will find an A or a V or other articles that are italicized. You will see this the is not italicized because it is in the original Greek language. The article is there and the article matters. Why am I making such a big deal about that? Because Peter says you are the Christ. The Christ. The Son of the living God. Now, the setting is right outside of Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is uh, talking to his disciples. And he says, what are the men in the streets saying? What are people saying about me? You guys are out and about when you're getting food and you're getting a place to stay. And what do people say when they see me? What do you overhear? They say, most people think that you're uh, a reincarnated prophet. A reincarnated prophet. And Peter is not a... Shy man, quick to answer. We believe that you are the Christ. 
There's something interesting to know about Caesarea Philippi. It's not an accident that they're walking through there when Jesus asked the question. You see, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi has a lot of histories, meaning that this city reinvented itself often. It is an ancient city going way back into the very beginning. Not long ago, it was renamed Caesarea Philippi in honor of Philip, who at one point had been the, uh, uh, the leader of the area, but also now Herod the Great had established it as a, as a pretty significant city and had given honor to the Caesar who was there. Augustus renamed it after himself then a little later. While Herod the Great was in power, he built a temple there to Caesar. And so Caesarea Philippi had recently become a place for the Romans to kind of flex their power throughout other empires. Now one of the things that I think would be important for us to know as well is that there was another a quasi-temple. It wasn't a temple, but it was a place of worship. It was like a grotto to the god, the Greek god Pan. Uh, the, the, the Roman god, they called him something else. But, but Pan is where we get, well, we get lots of history from the god Pan. He was the god of the wilderness, the desolate places. He was the god of the shepherds, the, one, the wild ones. Um, there was also there was a temple to the Caesar there. There was a temple to Pan there. There was also a temple to another one of the Baals from ancient times. He was the master of luck. The god of luck uh, was also there. And my point in saying all this is this was a very significant place. And Jesus is not inside the city. He is outside the city. But the city of the gods is serving as the background. When Jesus looks at his disciples and says... With all of these temples behind him and all of these worshipers behind him, who do men say that I am? Well, that you're a great teacher. That you're a man of wisdom. That you're a reincarnated prophet. But Peter, who do you say that I am? This is where the article matters. Okay, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And, and during, well, just about 100 years prior to this, the, 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 the Hebrew language was Hellenized and, and translated into Greek. All right? Hundreds of years, just, just hundreds of years before uh, Jesus. And so now we're going to talk about that for a second because you go into the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you may have heard it called the Septuagint. That's what it's called, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. When they translated that, when they would talk about specific kings, they would use a very specific word to talk about or, uh, uh, anointed, ordained kings. And they would use the Greek word Christos to talk about the king. So when, when Peter comes along and he looks at Jesus and Jesus says, who, I am, who am I among other gods? Peter says, you are the Christos, the king, among every other king. It's where we get our idea of Jesus being the king of every king. I don't care who your enemy is, what puts us all on the same page with Jesus being the king is everyone will bow down before King Jesus one day. You are not a king. You are not Christos. You are the Christ. The only Christ among false Christs. It's very powerful. In the shadow of the crown jewel of the Roman Empire. This obscure, dusty, dirty prophet of God is called the king of all kings, of all times. It's a pretty powerful confession. Peter is saying to him, you are king over every earthly power. But in light of the setting, we see that he is also the king over every heavenly power. There is no domain that does not exist that Jesus is, that does exist that Jesus is not the king over. 
That's the declaration that's happening in this text. Jesus is the king of everything. And by the way, let me explain this. This is so important. It doesn't matter if you believe that or not. This is one of those truths that does not need your affirmation. Jesus is the king, whether you call him king or not. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Christos, whether you walk in surrender or submission to him or not. Your opinion has no bearing on his position. We move on from there. He says you are Jesus. He sees Jesus as the only unique Son of God. The Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Son of God is used uh, occasionally throughout Scripture. Uh, Sons of God is found ten times in the New American Standard translation, which is one of my favorites. I do use the ESV because it is very, very accurate. But every time that it's found in Scripture, it is sons of God. You can see, and you've heard me teach on this before, but, and, and go back and check it if you want. You can find it in the book of Genesis. You can find it especially in the book of Job's, in the, in the, Job's. In the book of Job, in the, in the Psalms, you can find it there too. The sons of God, sons of God, sons of God. In the Old Testament, every time sons of God is used, it's in reference to angels. In the New Testament, every time sons of God is used, it's referring to people. But there's one distinct presupposition that you have to make about sons of God. There's one thing that everything that's called a son of God has in common. And it is that they were directly created by God Himself. God was involved in the creation of it. So let me explain to you this. In the book of Genesis, chapter 6 especially, it says the sons of God. We know that God directly created the angels themselves in reference to the fallen angels. You go over to Job and it talks about the sons of God as they have to give report and present themselves to God in His territory. This is like the morning press briefing that God expects from all of His creation, created angels. In the book of Psalms, it talks about the sons of God and how they give glory and honor to the Lord often throughout the Psalms. You can go back and check all of that. The outlier in the sons of God would be Adam himself. And this is found in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. This is in the begats, the son of, 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 right? You go all the way through that, you see Mary's ancestry. It's very interesting to get all the way to the end and it says, and Adam, the son of God, right? Except there you will see the italicized because there is no article it is Adam son of God not Adam the son of God the only time the article exists is in reference to Jesus Christ because he is the only begotten son of God Jesus Christ is the unique none like him when you see John chapter 3 verse 16 it says the only begotten son that word begotten we talk about well babe, so wait but so so the father beget him in some way and all these weird teachings and theology and doctrines uh, exist as how did Jesus get his founding that word begotten means that there's not another like him in all creation it doesn't mean he has a beginning it certainly doesn't mean he has an end Jesus was not created in fact in the beginning the word already existed when we came up with the idea of a beginning Jesus already was. You are the Son of the living God. The Son. Articles matter. The. None like Him. Unique all to Himself. And so when you think about this, you think about angels. God created the Son, created angels with His own hands. And then it says in Genesis chapter 1 that Jesus, well, Colossians chapter 1 over to... Uh, and we lay that over top of the, the filter on top of Genesis chapter 1 that, or 3 that God created Adam and formed him out of the dust of the earth and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living creature, right? The Son of God. And then you have passages like this where we find out that Jesus is not one of the sons of God. He is the Son of God. How is that? Because he was conceived... By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, directly created by God Himself. 
He's not the son of a man. Else he would have a sin nature. Jesus doesn't have a sin nature. That's what qualifies him to be our Savior. Very powerful. Don't miss it. But it doesn't derive its power because it's in our creed. It derives its power because it is the very breath of God. Let me give you one more little twist. Jesus is not the only person in the New Testament called the Son of God. In John chapter 1, verses 12, 13, and 14. But it says, to them who believe, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. Because when you give your life to Jesus Christ, he places his hands on you personally. And recreate you into something that's alive now. Because whatever you're calling life right now is not life. It's a false. It's, it's artificial. Whatever it is that you're living into right now, hoping that will give you joy, there is no joy apart from Jesus Christ. He didn't just come to give you life. He came to give you abundant life. Everything that is in Christ is better. Jesus walks in. Distinct authority. That's what makes him separate from any other son of God. You think, about, you think about the angels. The angels can't do that. Adam certainly can't do that. This is how we know Jesus was before all. Two. Jesus is unique in his sonship to the Father in that he is co-eternal with God the Father. Jesus has always been. And Jesus will always be. He is co-eternal. He has always been. You know this if you read the Gospel of John. It starts with that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was before all things. Jesus also walks in distinct authority. If you watch Jesus operate, He doesn't operate like one of the prophets. He doesn't have fear when He walks into the King. Even Elijah, in all of his power, walking into King Ahab. If you have any of the other prophets... Who are worried. Jeremiah who is worried about how am I going to talk to the king. You got Moses who sees God. Who talks with God. Who is scared to death to go talk to Pharaoh. But the king of kings don't have to worry about talking to Pharaoh. He's not afraid of an earthly king. An earthly power. You watch how Jesus walks. Everywhere Jesus goes and he teaches. They weren't amazed at his structure. They weren't amazed at his grammar. They were amazed at his Authority. He speaks as one with authority. Boy, if there's anything that the church of Jesus Christ has lost today, it is the authority of Jesus Christ. We don't speak with the authority of Christ anymore because we're afraid of what those outside of Christ are going to think about it. Well, listen, there is no transformation apart from His authority. His authority is everything. And Jesus, they, they said, Jesus, are you not afraid? We're going to die. There's a storm. Jesus, the king of kings is not afraid of a storm. The king of kings talks to the wind, and the wind obeys. Not one more. You ever, see, you ever had to get on to your kids and say, don't you do that one more time? And they just look at you, and they do it one more time. And then you let them get away with it? No, no, no. The wind the wind does not blow one more, not one more raindrop, not one more wave. Jesus didn't, you read through Scripture, Jesus didn't get in a lot of arguments. You ever been in an argument? So the problem with an argument is both people think they're right. Well, we know both people can't be right about the same thing at the same time if, they, if they're in disagreement, right? I mean, you can't... Somebody is wrong, at least some, and usually both people are wrong to some degree, but our stubborn pride won't let... But can you imagine when Jesus, when Jesus walks up and He says, why are you thinking that? You ever been? Some of you are married. You ever say, what, why are you thinking that? Well, you don't know what I'm thinking. You know, good, you know good and well that you were not thinking right when your spouse asked you, what were you thinking? But she doesn't really know what you're thinking. I mean, I mean he doesn't really know what you're thinking. And so you can kind of bluff your way through some of it. Right? It gets into this little argument. And you try to say, no, I wasn't thinking that. You weren't too thinking that. But all that's assumptions. Can you imagine getting in an argument with Jesus? You're not going to say, that's not what I was thinking. 
On the day of judgment, he's going to put your big panorama up there and show you your life, and you're going to say, that's not really what was going on. I need you to give you the context. <laughs> I mean, the king of kings is going to say, listen, I know your heart. I don't know, just know your mouth. I know your heart. That's authority, isn't it? One of my favorites is when he told Lazarus that he wasn't allowed to be dead anymore. <laughs> authority. Boy, that's Authority. Jesus, I don't care, I, you know, you, you read, again, we're going to talk about scary movies for a second, all right? You watch scary movies, and we don't like scary movies because we see the power of the enemy, and, and, and that's, that's scary, especially if you've dealt with the power of the enemy very much. But you don't see Jesus struggling with the power of the enemy very much in Scripture. In fact, that's not really found anywhere in Scripture. There is no battle. There is no wrestling in, in Jesus' ministry with demons. In fact, there was one time when Jesus showed up, and he started speaking to this demoniac, and the demons actually said, Whoa, what are you doing here so early? We knew that you were going to come eventually, but you're early. If you come to destroy us, they know what's coming. Because Jesus has all authority, and there is no Son of God like Jesus. Even though we talk about being kin to Christ, and we talk about being joint heirs with Jesus, listen, we are not like Jesus, nor will we ever be. He calls us after His name. He calls us a son. But Jesus is unique, and He is co-equal with the Father, and He will always have all authority. Jesus is not only the Christos, the Christ, the King. He's also the unique Son of God. But the last title given to Him in the Apostles' Creed is He is the Lord. The Lord. And that phrase, Jesus is the Lord, is... Is found in the New Testament close to 300 times. Now that's, that's a lot. It's one of the most common renderings given to Jesus. To his name, his ministry, his personhood, who he is. Jesus is Lord. The reason that that's so huge is because, again, in the Old Testament, when it was uh, translated into Greek, they translated the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. How many of you have ever heard of Yahweh? Well, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it doesn't say Yahweh very often. In our English but when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, you know, there's all capital letters, Lords, and then there's capital L, Lord, uh, with, with little O, R, and D. Uh, these, are, these are different words in Hebrew to mean different things. We, uh, so anytime you see all caps, Lord, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. Well, when you get into the New Testament, you begin to see Jesus is called Lord. And so, so it's not weird for us that Jesus is called the covenant name of God Himself. So for people who would say that Jesus never claimed to be God, go ahead and turn them off because they don't know about what they're talking. When Jesus is called Lord, He is called the Savior of the world. Again, the Lord, the only Savior of the world. We continually see this throughout the New Testament. When Jesus is called Lord, He is the Lord, making Him apart from every other Lord. When you are living in a feudal system and you have nobility or lords, you would call them Lord, which means that they are your provider. They are your protector. And you would call them Lord and you would curtsy and you would give them tax money. But when you're talking about Lord, all caps, you're talking about this sovereign master who is not only the king of all kings, but he is a nurturing provider and protector of everybody in his domain. The good news is, is that Jesus Christ has all dominion and all authority. He does not need your affirmation to be that. The Lord. I mean, if Jesus is mean... And I'm not going to take a poll in here, but there may be some people in here who would say, I can't believe Jesus would do something like this to me. When Jesus is mean to you, or you think Jesus is mean, who would you appeal to? There is no one higher. And Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, and they think He's some kind of rebel. I mean, they think that He's up to no good. 
And all of the soldiers of the Roman army come to arrest him. You remember? And they come and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And they back up and fall to the ground. Who do you you call when you have a problem with Jesus? Boy, if we could just understand how weak and impossible our situation is. There is none higher. We would grow in reverence for the kingship of King Jesus. In his kingly domain, in his rule, his reign, which extends over everything. He could use that authority for selfish purposes. But what does he do? He saves. He rescues. He redeems. He restores. He lifts. He offers hope. You see, Jesus is a tender king. If Jesus is a tyrant in your life, you misunderstand him. If Jesus is a dictator and he's out to get you, you misunderstood him. Jesus is a tender king. He's a savior king. In fact, the very nature of God being triune shows us that creation exists. We exist out of an overflow of mutual love and happiness that already existed in the Godhead. You go look at at, at different creation accounts Around the world, other religions of where, where do we come from, and you'll see that there's a power struggle, good and evil, or God versus God, and, and out of that was, uh, was, was created, uh, the universe. But in truth, out of the overflow of God's perfections within the Godhead, everything exists. Jesus is no tyrant. Jesus seeks to save Now, we, we talked a couple weeks ago about needing to walk through the Apostles' Creed because it would help us to develop better balance. And, and when, when we're not balanced, we begin to get off balance and we begin to lean into certain areas. And when, as we lean and we begin to get a, another firm foundation, it doesn't take very long for us to start getting into false teaching and false truths and false doctrines And then we begin to have experiences and we filter truth with our experiences. By the way, not a great idea. Truth is truth apart from your experience. If you have an experience apart from truth, trust truth, not your experience. If your experience is in corruption with the Word of God, you have misunderstood your experience. Because the truth doesn't change. Some of us here would say, Christ is Savior. I totally get that. He's Savior. But there's no, there's no part of you that would call Him King. In other words, you love that Jesus saves. You love that gentle Jesus that just lets you get away with everything. That gentle Jesus that just loves to give you grace. And that gentle Jesus that hung on the cross and died for even a sinner like you. And we love thinking about that, how valuable we are to King Jesus. We understand that He's the King, but boy, we sure do love Him as the Savior. Gives us special privileges. Gives us lots of permission when we know we can get forgiveness later. And it doesn't take very long for us to get out of balance. When you trust, and most of us come to Jesus because He's our Savior. Most of us, and I know that was for me, I was scared to death. You've heard my story before in part, but I was scared to death. I did not want to go to hell. And so I, rest, I, I reached up to Savior Jesus to give me fire insurance. <laughs> But it took me decades to figure out that Christianity was a lot more than fire insurance. There's a lot of people who, I, I'm just going to be really frank and just pretty bold this morning with this. If you're trusting Jesus only as your Savior, you're missing the best parts. It's the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom, but you're not wise as a believer if you're not trusting King Jesus. And to put Jesus as your king, you have got to place yourself under his entire authority. If he's not the king of all, he's not the king at all. I'm telling you, there's more to life than this. 
If you're walking in the freedom of Christ, but you're only forgiven, but you're not walking as a son devoted to King of kings and the Lord of lords, you're missing out. In fact, I would go a step further. If you've only surrendered your sin to Jesus, but not your days, you're probably not walking with King Jesus. We've, we've taken on a form of godliness, but denied the power, as Paul said. And I think a whole lot of Christianity is walking around calling ourselves Christian, but we're not. We're not. You are not a Christian until he's your king. And he's patient. And he waits. And so in order to, you know, make ourselves feel better, we've come up with words like nominal Christian. Scripture knows nothing of this category. There's others in the room. We talked about this with God's character last week. But there's others in the room that really understand King Jesus and we're scared to death of Him. We understand that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and He can't be bothered with people like us. So we're terrified of King Jesus and we, we live in terror of the day of judgment where we know He is going to shake our lights out. You need to learn that while Jesus is judge, He is kind and He is good and He is loving. And He does love to give grace to His people who surrender their life to Him. See, we have to walk not with Jesus as King or Jesus as Savior, but where Jesus is King and Savior. Walking in that harmony. Learning to live in the balance of you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord. So I don't, know, I don't know where you are this morning. I know this. I know that you have to do something with Jesus. You cannot be ambivalent with Jesus. You also cannot pick and choose which parts you want to believe. You can't go through and highlighting some of it, not highlighting other parts of it. You can't even go through and say, what do I feel about that passage of Scripture? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. All Scripture is God-breathed. We know who the Father is. We know who the Son is. And everybody on earth, every religion on earth does something when Jesus, when they hear it. You cannot deny the historicity of Jesus Christ. It is a foundational truth. Jesus Christ existed. And any writer that denies the existence of Jesus Christ I'm, I'm standing in a position right now where I can't really say what they are. But don't read anything they write because they can't be trusted in any way. If they're, I, I've, I've, I've read some of these people. I've, I've read some of their articles. People who say that Jesus never really existed. He's a combination of lots of people. Idiots. I'll just say it. They're idiots. Don't believe these people. I don't know how in the world we're paying them to have airtime. They're idiots. Sorry if that offends you. I really don't mean to offend you. But I don't know what else to say. It, it just gets harsher from here. Don't trust, listen, okay, I wish I could take all that back, I'm sorry. Anybody who would understand any history would know that you cannot deny the historicity of Jesus Christ. And if you can't deny His history, you cannot deny His resurrection. Anybody who's ever tried to prove that Jesus didn't exist is now walking with Jesus. We'll just say it that way. You look at the Muslims. Muslims believe in Jesus. In fact, they go so far as to say that Jesus was one of the best prophets that God ever sent to us. Greatest prophets God ever sent. Now, they will not say, they might put Muhammad in front of Jesus, but they call him Isa. He's actually found in the Quran several times. The Jews, Judaism in general, view Jesus as a number of false messianic claimants who have led tons of people away from the true religion of Judaism. But you look at other polytheistic religions in the world that are willing to add Jesus to their list, you've got to be really, really careful because you go into some places that already have lots of gods and you tell them about Jesus. And they say, yeah, we love that. Put him on the shelf. Hindus regard Jesus as the incarnation of their god, Vishnu, according to their belief. Vishnu periodically 
incarnates into the world and comes as a fish or a dwarf, sometimes as a human. Jesus is one of those incarnations as a human, but he comes in order to preserve and sustain life and to restore order and balance. Listen, Jesus is not going to be added to a list. And if you're here today, you might not be much different than that. You've, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you still got lots of idols in your life that you pay homage to. Lots of things that you prefer over King Jesus. But He is Lord, He is King, and you cannot have Him with another. Even atheists and agnostics do something with Jesus. Unbelievers see Jesus as a historic person, but irrelevant for today. Most unbelievers are not hostile toward Jesus. Not like we would think. There are some who are. I personally believe that one of the reasons that most unbelievers that are kind of angry at the name of Jesus is because they're so convicted that they can't get beyond it. Jesus actually, Paul said about Jesus in Romans chapter 1 that, that, that everybody believes, but they suppress the truth. Professing themselves wise, they become fools, right? Romans one twenty two. But there are a lot of Christians, people who call themselves Christians, who see Jesus as a good add-on to life, but not necessarily the king of their lives. I'm telling you, Jesus is not a genie in a bottle that gives us our wishes. Jesus is not a God who demands nothing, and when all is said and done... He will not just be an errand boy who grabs us things in this life to make us more comfortable. Well, Listen, let me just say that all of those things Jesus in Scripture actually rejects. But let me just say this. Jesus did not say, live like me. Jesus never said, live like me. He said, submit and surrender to me. It's not good enough to live like Jesus. We must be surrendered to the King. So we need some clarity when it comes to walking with King Jesus. The last thing that I want to talk about this morning, and it's pretty simple, is that how, how do we counsel our lives and how do we walk in harmony with who Jesus is? The one thing that sets Jesus apart from any other is that Jesus became incarnational. In other words, Jesus left perfection to come to earth. He, 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 he took off his, 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 uh, his I don't want to say he put, took off his deity. He certainly didn't, but he laid it aside. And he took on flesh so that he could die as our kinsman redeemer. So when you learn how to walk in balance between the Savior of the world and the King of all kings, that's exactly what we become. We become incarnational of Jesus Christ, which means that we put off our life, we take up his cross, and we follow him in servanthood. And we look for opportunities to incarnate Christ in this world, looking to serve. Yeah, that's what I said when we started out this morning, is, is the church of Jesus Christ looks for opportunities to push back darkness. And there are so many Christians who want church to be this safe haven, this white ivory towered kind of place, but you don't find that in Scripture. What you find in Scripture is not Christians staying clean from the world. You find Christians who are willing to get dirty knowing that Jesus Christ is the one who washes us. I'm not talking about in sin, but I'm talking about we're not afraid to interact with people who are not like us. We're, we're not, we're not uh, uh, encapsulating ourselves behind, hoping that we don't get infested with the world. We're out there like Jesus Christ, leaving the safe places and manifesting the glory of God everywhere we go. This is why you go to different hospitals. They have church names on them or they have Saint so-and-so on them or they'll have Presbyterian or Baptist or whatever, whatever. Because the church of Jesus Christ incarnates Christ in this world. And that's what we had better be doing is getting into the gutter with lost people and loving them just like our Savior. And then we walk in obedience 
to Him in such a way that those that He saves, He restores and redeems by placing them under His authority as the King of Kings. That's what, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's why our life matters here and now. It's because we're walking in balance. We're walking in balance. And Jesus never called us to be a disciple. He called us to make disciples. And as we walk in balance with the King of Kings and the Savior, our Lord, we're leading people to walk with King Jesus and make Him the Savior of their world as well. So I pray that you will learn to walk in balance with that. We believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And we believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten, our Lord. Let's stand together. Lord, we are so grateful that all things are beneath you and that you lift our heads and you invite us into your presence. Lord, we are so grateful that you are the King, that you are the Lord, that you are our Savior. We give you honor. We give you blessing. We give you glory. For you have all power, all dominion, all authority. In Jesus' name we pray. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.